You're all welcome to stand during the whole sermon. It's what they do in Europe. <laughs> it's such an honor for me to be here. I know it's a big event for uh, the Brooks family. Uh, uh, Graham got married in the, the chapel, Truett Seminary Chapel of Baylor University, and so I am here uh, filling in for Dwayne Brooks. I think it's a bad trade, but honestly, it's an honor for me to be here. I'd like to read from the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 4, verse 26 uh, through 29. In this chapter, uh, Jesus is talking about what the kingdom of God is like. He's using a lot of seed parables. And in verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of God's word. In the parable of this seed sown upon the earth, Jesus compares the reign of God to the everyday world of a farmer. Now, I do not know much about farming. I grew up in a large East Coast city. But my mother's family used to farm on the eastern shore of Maryland, and I do remember as a little kid riding around on a big green tractor, going out in the cornfield and picking corn, and then going into the chicken coop and collecting eggs. But that's the extent of my farming experience. But even if you know a lot about farming, trying to understand what this deceptively simple parable is about is challenging. A farmer casts seed on the earth and then does nothing. Days pass. He goes through the everyday routine of life. He sleeps, he rises night and day. There's no mention of plowing, no mention of watering, cultivating, or fighting off the parasites and unlike the parable of the sower that precedes it, there's no reference to the challenge of a field that is plagued by birds that swoop down and snatch the seed. No reference to rocky ground that has no depth of soil. No reference to thorns that grow up and choke the seed. So the parable must be about what happens when the seed lands in good soil, like in the parable of the sower, some produce 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And the farmer contributes nothing to this harvest except that he sows the seed. It germinates in the ground, and he, Jesus says he doesn't know how it happens. He's ignorant of the process. And that little detail basically tells us that the farmer is not the cause of this grace, growth. 
The earth is said to produce of itself. We get our word in the Greek word there. We get our word automatically from it. It, 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 it grows without visible cause. It grows incomprehensibly. The only other time that word occurs in the New Testament is Acts 12, 10, where Peter is being led out of prison. He comes to an iron gate and it says it opens by itself. And we know iron gates don't open by themselves. This is the power of God that is at work. And the marvel of the seed's growth implies God's miraculous working. Paul underscores this point and he writes to the Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I and Apollos, we are nobodies. He's the water boy, I'm the farmhand. We're interchangeable, we are replaceable, but God is not. God gives the growth. And there is a pointed order. First the blade, then the ear grain, then the full corn. And when it's full grown, the farmer reacts by putting his sickle into the grain. The harvest has come. Three elements combined together. The farmer who sows the seed in the soil but I thought we could look at this from the perspective of the farmer. And the first point is that you've got to be confident. He is confident during the wait. Jesus seems to be saying, he is saying, that God's kingdom comes as certainly as a harvest comes after you've sown it into the ground. The seed buried deep in the earth somehow is going to sprout and find the sun. And the farmer is confident there's going to be a harvest simply because he sowed the seed. He doesn't know how the seed grows. He doesn't see what transpires underneath the earth. He simply trusts that God is involved, God is active, and God will bring the harvest to pass. I learned that in my very first church when I was preaching. And I'd worked on a sermon and I thought, boy, this is going to be a humdinger. And on Sunday morning, it just fell flat. Happened more than once. Just fell flat. And people, you know, they line up, you know, they had to go past you and, and line up. They usually say something to you. They never said, boy, that really stunk. There was one person who did, but, that, that, but normally they'd say something like, well, you know, that's a nice tie or something like that. <laughs> but I remember vividly on a Sunday night, I, it, I, I'd just been a bad week and I just, it just wasn't very good. I wanted to apologize right in the middle. I'm sorry, folks, I'll try to do better next week. But something, the Spirit of God moved in a way I did not understand that had nothing to do with me. It was simply the sowing of God's Word in an incredible way. And I realize that it's not up to me. And Jesus compares the seed 
of God's word in good soil, it's going to do good work. And they portray this seed working as something inconspicuous, often hidden from view. And it contrasts with the image of John the Baptist who came preaching about the fiery judgment of God. It's going to rumble in like a hurricane. It's going to come with spirit and fire. The, he's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And if you're not ready, you're going to be blown away. But Jesus says the reign of God is like a seed sown in the ground. Not much noise there. And the working of God in our world really, it really makes headlines. I mean, when's the, you watch those news channels? When's the last time anyone said, and now news about the reign of God in the world? It, it, it just doesn't happen. What God is doing in our world will always seem inconsequential to outsiders. And even to insiders, because God so often works silently in ways that human eyes are prone to overlook. It's like watching corn grow. From our finite perspective, we're ignorant of God's grand schemes even when we're living in the midst of them. Paul wrote to the Philippians. He was trying to comfort them. They were all upset. Paul had been arrested. He's in prison, I think, in Rome. And this is, they thought this is a terrible setback for the gospel. What are we going to do? The apostle is in jail. And Paul writes to him and said, no. This is for the advance of the gospel. The entire Praetorian guard, the guard around the emperor, the entire Praetorian guard has heard the gospel preached. The folks in Rome have dared all the more boldly to preach the word. It's like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on the seed head. And so this parable says when our eyes are clouded by disappointment, we need to be confident the seed sown is going to produce a harvest. When we despair and we look out and we think that the reign of God, God's purposes are being eclipsed, Jesus reminds us that God's word does not and will not ever fail. When our hearts are weighed down by doubt, we need faith that God's kingdom is unstoppable by human unbelief and unhelped by all of our efforts. So we can be confident, but you've got to be patient. The Bible says with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And the detail of the farmer rising and sleeping points to his patience while the seed and the earth do what they do. As the blade slowly pushes through the earth, forms a stalk and bears the, bears the fruit as the ear full of grain. The farmer has to wait. And I hate waiting. 
Whenever I go to Walmart, I always get in the wrong lane. I'm always behind somebody in front of me who has an item with no price tag and they've got a Rouse Myrtle and housewares or something to find the price. And we live in this age of, you know, of increasing labor-saving devices. We've got high-speed this, we've got high-speed that. And, and it, it encourages us to be impatient. It struck me years ago, and this was years ago. My, I, my son was either seven or eight, and, and my wife was out of town, and I had to do the cooking, which meant that I took some kind of prepackaged, put it in the microwave. And my son is standing there and said, Dad, how come microwaves take so long? When it comes to God's work, you have to be patient. I'm a child of missionary parents, missionary aunt and uncle, missionary grandparents. And every missionary, every missionary has their darkest chapter story when they're disheartened by setbacks that seem to be insurmountable. More than once, they'll have a feeling of inadequacy, a feeling of complete defeat comes over them as their work seems to be accomplishing nothing. Robert and Mary Moffat, back in the 1800s, were missionaries to South Africa, and Robert Moffat compared his work to a farmer laboring to transform the surface of granite rock into arable land. His wife lamented, could we just see the smallest fruit? We could rejoice midst the privations and toil which we bear, but as it is, our hands often do hang down. The despair descended on Clarence Jones, who believed that God had called him to pioneer work in radio evangelism in the 1920s in South America. And in the early going, every door of opportunity seemed to be shut. And he said, and I quote, I'm unable to shake off this feeling of total inadequacy, total failure. I am chagrined. I think I've become to look like a fool. And he decided to quit, join the Navy. But they rejected him, ironically, for imperfect vision. We're impatient. We sometimes feel God's put us on hold, and, and, and so we hang up. But we can't see off in tomorrow, let alone next week, let alone next year, let alone eternity. And so we, we really want things to happen now. My cousin is writing a history of our grandparents who were missionaries to India back at the turn of the last century. And in her research, she, she found some correspondence that my parents wrote to them. My parents were also missionaries to India. And, and it, it was during some very dark days my parents had just lost their first child and lived 12 days and, and, and they were told that they would probably never have children again. The work was going slowly. And, and my mother wrote this, we're sure that God will not let this work be in vain. 
Well, last fall, I received an email from one of our graduates of Truett Seminary. His name is Sagar Bukya. I sent the email to several of our faculty members, and he asked for prayer because he would be doing baptisms that night. And man, I can understand. When you're about to do baptisms for the first time, I mean, I'm, you, you, you ask for prayer. I remember my first baptism. It was an unmitigated disaster. I was in a little country church in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, and we had six young people, some young marrieds, who were coming to be baptized, two couples, and then the husbands of two of the members of our church. We didn't have a baptistry in my little country church, so we borrowed a baptistry uh, at Bullet Lick Baptist Church. And, and my seminary never taught me how to baptize. I've seen it done, but, but I never, this was my very, very first time. And the first, the two couples, that, that went fine, but the fifth was this tall, this lanky dude. And I did not move sufficiently so that when I put him down back in the water, his head banged against the wall. It was hollow metal wall. It was this gigantic gong and everybody in the congregation gasped. And then I dropped them. I'm trying to figure, we're swimming around in there. And I'm thinking, Lord, I wonder if one of those denominations that all they do is sprinkle, I wonder if they'll take me. Or, <laughs> Lord, if send me shorter converts. But, Sagar Bukya is praying, doing baptisms tonight. Please pray for me. I understand. But he was doing, he said, 1,000 baptisms. 1,000 Banjari in the same area where my parents were missionaries in Andhra Pradesh. And they, in 25 years, never saw anything like that. But they sowed the seed, and you have to be patient. But then you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready for action when the wait is over. And the inactivity of the farmer while the grain is growing contrasts with the rush of activity when the grain is ripe. God does not expect us to be patient sitting in our rocking chair forever. There comes a time for action. When harvest time comes, the routine of life is broken and the urgency of the hour requires total commitment and concentrated energy. The farmer may not know how seeds grow, but he better know how to reap and spring into action when the time comes. My colleague at Baylor University, Doug Weaver, reminds us of a sobering fact in history. In 1266, the Mongol Empire stretched from the Black Sea all across to the Pacific Ocean. And he asked Marco Polo if he would go to Rome and persuade the church in Rome to send 100 men to teach Christianity to his court. 
But the Christians were in such disarray. They were fighting among themselves. There were these power plays and all that kind. It took them 28 years before they sent one, not 100, but one missionary. And Kublai Khan was retired and he said, it's too late. <laughs> it, it's too, I'm grown old in my idolatry. I heard Fred Craddock tell the story of being a young preacher out of seminary and he was a pastor of a church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And it was just when it was starting to boom. It's growing rapidly. Folks are moving in from all over to work in construction. And many of them lived in a trailer park not far from the church. And, and being this idealistic new seminary grad, he presented a program to the board. You know, I think we need to reach out to these folks, invite them to our worship, bring their kids into our Sunday school. And the chairman of the board said, well, I don't know about that. I, I, you know, I don't think they're going to fit in very well here. They're, 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 they're not going to be here for long. They're just transient. But the young pastor said, you know, they live right in our, our area. Wait, we need to invite them into our church. And someone decided that we need to table this till the next business meeting. When that came up, there's a motion on the floor that said, if you are going to be a member of our church, you must own property in the county. The young preacher was mortified. The motion passed. And eventually he moved on. And about 20 years later, he said he was traveling in the area with his wife. She was, he was not married at the time. And when he was pastor of the church, and he wanted to show her, his wife, this beautiful white clabbered church. And he found it, he came up and, and, and there was this big parking lot. It was jam-packed with pickup trucks and cars and motorcycles. He said, wow, this is real change. And then he saw the sign that said, barbecue, all you can eat. Church had become a restaurant. He went inside and all kinds of people in there. And he said to his wife, boy, it's a good thing this is not a church or these people wouldn't be allowed in. You can be confident when the seed has been sown that God will accomplish things and patient, but you need to be ready when the harvest comes.